Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and it's just me and our sound engineer, William Broughton, here in the studio today. So I'm going to get right to our conversation. We were speaking a couple of weeks ago with Leslie Jameson, whose new book is Make It Scream, Make It Burn. And Medea and I were talking to her at a LARB luminary event, a cocktail event at the wonderful Tom Lutz, editor-in-chief of LARB's house, and his wonderful wife, Lori Weiner, a senior editor at LARB. And this was a great night, and we had a wonderful time speaking with Leslie about her new book. I'm just going to get right to that conversation. So actually, the first voice you'll be hearing is Tom Lutz introducing Leslie, and then you'll hear Medea, Ocher, and I speaking with him. I am very thrilled to be able to give a quick introduction. I'm going to let Kate and Dea do the real introduction to Leslie Jameson. I feel like we started around the same time. LARB was starting right when you were first publishing. You may have been one of our very first author interviews ever. And to do it here is fun because LARB lived for the first three years of its life in the basement of this house. This is where LARB was born, just with a midwife, no doctor. So we're kind of thrilled to be back at the old ranch doing it once more. I'm an enormous fan of Leslie's work, have been since those early days, and we're thrilled to have her. I'm going to let turn it over to Kate Wolf and Medea Ocher. This is a live recording for the radio show for the LARB Radio Hour. Kate and Dea run the radio hour, and so laugh really loud and clap a lot and do those things that live audiences do. We don't have an applause sign, but you know when to do it. Okay, so Kate and Dea. That's great. (laughs) We have Leslie Jameson here with us today. Leslie Jameson is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Recovering and The Empathy Exams, as well as the novel, The Gin Closet. She's a National Magazine Award finalist, and she has written for publications like Things You've Never Heard Of, The New York Times, The New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and LARB and we're very proud of that. She lives in Brooklyn and directs the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia University. Her latest book, and what we're going to be talking about tonight, is called Make It Scream, Make It Burn. It's a collection of essays. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. Oh, it's so great to... Wow. <laughs> it's so great to be here, and I just wanted to say to Tom as well, thank you for that introduction, and that I also feel like I grew up with the LA Review of Books, and not only because I grew up in LA and had this intense feeling of hometown vindication and pride. When I went to the East Coast for college, I felt like LA was seen as this like black hole where culture should be. And the fact that the LA Review of Books started and was this amazing home for like in-depth, rigorous, long-form essays not only gave a home to these early pieces that I wrote, some of the pieces from Empathy Exams, one of the pieces in this collection, not only found a home in LA Review of Books, but like wouldn't have existed if I didn't know that home was there. It made me feel so good to be here tonight because I feel so connected with the long history of LARB and also in this, the part of me that feels so deeply connected to being from LA also just feels this intense pride that LARB like comes from this space. So anyway, I'm really happy to be here. That's so nice. Thank you. So 
As you were putting together this collection, how long, what's the span of these pieces? About how many years? So the earliest essay was written in 2013, or the first draft was written in 2013, but some of the earlier pieces were also some of the pieces that I revised most substantively, like kind of did gut renovations on when I was coming back to them for the collection. So as you were looking at these pieces, what kind of themes were popping out to you as the cohesion and also just looking at your kind of arc? I mean, it's not that long, but, you know, over the last five or six years as a writer, like what were you noticing about the changes in the way you wrote or things you wrote about? Some of the things that started to emerge to me as these subterranean thematic rivers kind of connecting what often, you know, look disparate as subjects for the essays. Like there's an essay about a celebrity whale. There's an essay about children who have past life memories. There's an essay about people who create these elaborate digital existences on second life. There are essays about becoming a stepmom or giving birth. But I think the things that connect them underneath for me are the idea of how we are defined by the things that we can't quite hold or touch or understand. So things that we long for but can't fully grasp or things that we once had but don't have anymore or things that we keep trying to get right but keep failing at, like these states of kind of ongoing imperfect partial relation, which all sounds maybe hopelessly abstract, but I hope or felt as I was writing it were sort of brought into focus by these particular terrains. And then I think I was really excited by the ways that those thematic connections could bring together pieces that were quite different in their methodology. So some of these pieces are very reported, some are much more critical, some are much more personal, but all of those feel like methods that are being thrown at resonant, insoluble questions. It's interesting that you say that because the thing that I, after I read the empathy exams and I read this book, that I think that you really excel at is the weird position that the writer is always in, which is you always seem to yearn to join what you are writing about, but you're also the writer and so you are necessarily separate from it. And so you seem to have also put yourself in a position where you are always sort of out of reach of the thing that you are looking for. Maybe like your subjects. Yeah, no, I think that's really smart and feels really right to me that I'm not only writing about people who are hungry for some sense of connection that they never quite feel they have, which is the human condition, maybe all of us, but you know, looking at all the people who have become obsessed with this whale who's become known as the loneliest whale in the world and the way that it's often people who identify as deeply lonely who become obsessed with this whale. But part of what they are seeking and to some extent finding in that obsession is a community of other people who feel that way. And Second Life is another example of a locus that kind of draws people who maybe feel outside of the world or marginalized in some way. And so they find this digital existence where they can create a kind of bespoke landscape where they feel they belong and they meet others who they feel this shared sense of belonging with. And I think that sense of sort of hungering to be part of something, but always feeling in some ways outside of it is not only a resonant personal feeling for me, but is in a way, as you say, like a condition of sort of partial belonging that I keep enacting by virtue of being a writer writing about the subject. And I was telling Tom earlier, 
somebody said something that felt really insightful but also surprising to me about the title essay in the collection, which is an essay about James Agee and his book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, the 1936, like 450-page study of three sharecropper families in Alabama during the Great Depression. It's a piece of long-form criticism. It's looking at an early draft of that project and how that draft became this sort of singular, crazy, guilt-ridden, brilliant, frustrating text. Somebody said, you know, in a way that seemed like the most personal essay in the entire collection. It contains no autobiography and it contains very little I, but I think they were right that it is deeply personal. And I think part of what's personal about it is its attempt to articulate that state of thwarted partial connection and deep longing that exists between a writer and subject. And I'm looking at it in AG, but it's a way of articulating something, of course, that I felt. But I also noticed that that essay, you seem to be skeptical of A.G. and very critical of him. And I guess it's somewhat ambiguous, but the amount of subjectivity. And I guess without quite knowing how to articulate it, that is something I wanted to ask you about, that, you know, there's so much in the collection about kind of telling stories and all your pieces. Like, I can only think of it like a Pac-Man who, like... Mm -hmm. You like set out the little things, like you do all the work of creating this world and then I, like you eat it all like right in front of us, you yeah. know, like you kind of give the material and digest it in every piece and there's a lot of self-reflection. So that approach, you know, where it is really very subjective versus someone like a more removed, even if that's fictional but kind of removing the eye from a narrative more. Like if you ever grapple with that or just feel like, oh, like I just want to like write every single thing that's in front of me and not make anything of it, just describe and nothing else. Yes. Do I wrestle with it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that I love that image of the Pac-Man game. I've never been any good at any arcade game. So that idea that I somehow created an arcade game that I could be good at by writing essays is really appealing to me. But certainly that motion of setting out the world and then digesting the world or a sort of a version of like an Ouroboros of like the snake of narrative swallowing its own tail on the page. I think it's less that I feel it as an overt choice that I have to tell a story or lay something out and then consume it or metabolize it and more that I just don't know any other way of being on the page, I think. And I guess part of what I try to think about when I ask myself the question, which is a different question in relation to each piece of like how much of me should be in this piece and what's the role of me in this piece is how can my presence in this piece feel like it's facilitating a reader's engagement with this subject rather than blocking a reader's engagement because there's there's a version of the I, the presence of the narrator in a piece that can feel like a body standing between the reader and the subject or the reader and the landscape. And I think sometimes my frustration with A.G. is that it can feel like A.G.'s body, literally, when he's describing spending the night on one of these families' porches or more figuratively when he's talking about his endless guilt. You can feel his body or his subjectivity or his guilt as this kind of shadow where you just want it to get out of the way so you can see the family or so you can see their daily life or so you can see the things that they feel about their home rather than just seeing the things A.G. feels about their home. But I think there's another version of a narrator's presence on the page where you feel that narrator is a kind of guide who's 
opening up the landscape for you or asking the questions of a subject that maybe were the questions you would have wanted to ask them or bringing their own experience into the frame in a way that illuminates something about the subject that kind of surprises you and catches you off guard. And it's that's the hope, right, is that the narrative I, when I do come onto the page, is sort of opening up these little doors in the wall and then taking you through them rather than feeling like this sort of looming figure that you just, you know, want to try to see around the side of her body in some way. But you also really write a lot about bodies. And there are many instances, not to contradict what you said, but there are many instances in this book and many different essays where there's a sort of insistence on the body and an acknowledgement of it and the importance of acknowledging it there. I don't think the writer's body is exempt from that. It seems like you sort of reiterate the importance of an acknowledgement of bodies and their various systems and their various needs and desires very often, actually. I don't see you disappearing that often. Yeah, oh. and I think it's very much that, yes, I mean, the body is everywhere and I could even, you know, hear when I'm talking about a body that's too large that you want it to get out of the way. I can hear the sorts of anxieties, actually, that I mm. try to analyze and dissect on the page about taking up too much room or being in the way. I think for me, it's part of the same project, right? Which is like, how how can the physical presence of a body open up the world, like become a sort of set of nerve endings that's collecting information and bringing things into view? And so I think I often use my body as a vehicle on the page to try to open things up. So I'm thinking a lot about the last essay in the collection, which is called The Quickening and structurally juxtaposes the experience of an eating disorder in my late teens with the experience of becoming pregnant 15 years later. And they started out as separate essays, actually an essay about the eating disorder and an essay about pregnancy. And at a certain point, my editor felt that neither one of them was working and asked me why I wanted them to be in the collection. And I said, why I really like the way they speak to each other. And the second I heard myself say that, I knew that subconsciously I was giving myself a set of formal or structural instructions where if I wanted the eating disorder and the pregnancy to speak to each other, I needed to make them speak to each other. And that part of how that was going to happen was by braiding them together. Why do they speak to each other for you? I mean, I think there's the kind of surface relationship, which is a relationship of contrast or conversion where on the one hand the eating disorder was an experience of denying the body, whittling the body down, trying to make the body small, obeying the tyrannical insistence of certain anxieties about the body taking up too much space and that I was initially drawn to the experience of pregnancy as an opposite to that or an alternative to that where I was sort of finally allowing the body to take up space. I was stepping on a scale for the first time in my life, wanting it to read higher. So there was this contrast and a kind of very appealing conversion narrative. Like I used to relate to my body in this way, but now I have come to relate to it in that way. But of course, I mean, as is often the case, I think, in essays, or at least in essays that I write, that conversion narrative exists to be betrayed or turned on where it's like, right, I wanted to believe in pregnancy as a kind of conversion from this prior disordered self, but actually so much of pregnancy was still living in relation to those same cultural scripts. So when I was pregnant, you know, people would say, oh, you, you barely look pregnant at all, as if that was a kind of compliment, right? And the ways in which I received that as a compliment felt like 
they were still very much in relation to the 19-year-old who had tried very hard to be small. And so I think part of the material of the essay and part of, to get to your question, the presence of the body in the essay isn't just to recount the sort of physical details of being pregnant or what it felt like to have this endless hunger or obey this endless hunger, but also a way of commenting on the fact that we can get really attached to narratives of conversion. Like I used to be this way and then I did a 180 and turned out to be this way. And that actually those narratives of conversion are always more complicated and messy and partial than we want to believe they are. And that becomes sort of one of the things, hopefully, that the body can open up. That essay in particular, I was very... Because I have had a child and had had certain expectations of what it would be like and imagined myself as this kind of person and what my body would do and everything of just based on some idea I had of myself and a story I told myself about myself. And then, you know, of course, the experience I had had no relation to mm -hmm. what I imagined I would have. And there's something really refreshing about that experience, actually, where reality intervenes and sets in and shows you you have no idea mm -hmm what's going to happen, who you are, what one thing means in relation to another. Like I thought, oh, I like to do yoga. Like <laughs> it'll be great. It'll be so easy. And it seems like you have a similar experience, which kind of leads me to the kind of storytelling, the story we tell ourselves is a huge theme of the book, meaning a lot of different things, meaning delusion, you know, meaning confusion, meaning projection, but then also times meaning survival, you know, as a way to survive, meaning as empathy building, that we tell ourselves stories about other people, like the layover story piece, which I thought is a wonderful essay, that you imagine this whole, like, tragic story for this woman, and that starts to help you want to help her. That resonates so deeply for me as this kind of connective thread between pieces, like the ways that we are constantly turning our own lives, the lives of other people into narratives and that the ways those narratives are constantly disrupted is something I'm always trying to pay attention to. And I think it's one of the aesthetic principles that I really try to live by is a willingness to let my stories get overturned, whether those are personal stories or stories that I'm reporting. And that looks concretely like a willingness to revise and in some cases like revising a personal essay that I wrote in 2013 and 2018 and like letting the stories that I told myself about myself get overturned by that 2018 self. That's sort of one version of being open to the story being something different than what you thought it was. And, you know, when you're talking about your own experience of pregnancy in relation to that, I mean, I'm thinking about even just the physical image of my birth plan, which is like a whole plan for how the thing is going to go, just staying as this little piece of paper folded up in the corner of a duffel bag, right? Like it didn't have anything to do with what happened. But some version of that like folded up piece of paper in the duffel bag, I think applies to a lot of pieces in this collection, whether it's thinking about the families that I write about in this essay titled, appropriately, we tell ourselves stories in order to live again which I, you know, I'm obviously riffing off of the famous line from Didion's essay, The White Album. And I think riffing off of that line as a way to argue with her intense and I think sometimes very condescending skepticism about 
the stories people tell themselves about their own lives and about the world where, you know, the White Album as this kind of canonical essay begins and ends on a note in which Didion is the sort of knowing, intelligent skeptic who can see through the overly simple stories people tell themselves in order to survive an essentially chaotic and meaningless world. And I think there's real truth in that. Like, do we tell ourselves overly simple stories about the world in order to believe that it makes more sense than it does? Yes, of course. And is it important to interrogate those overly simple stories? Yes, of course. But I sort of found myself growing really weary of that posture of dismissal and skepticism and wanted to think also about some of the other things you're describing, like survival and like the usefulness of certain stories. And for me, the real meaning or beauty that I found in watching the ways people survived by virtue of the stories they told themselves. So when I'm looking at these families who believe that their children were having memories of prior lives, I feel like there's one story you can tell about them where it's a kind of folie a or a delusion that's grown in these families that has become in some cases like a sort of cottage industry where they're like writing books and going on TV and but I'm less interested in the sort of takedown where you look at them as either intentional hucksters or naively deluded and more interested in like what emotional function are the stories of these prior lives serving for them and that to me is like interesting question there's actually a lot of beauty in that process of sort of crafting experience into a narrative that allows you to survive that experience. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You've been listening to a conversation with Leslie Jameson, author most recently of Make It Scream, Make It Burn. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. So we have Jenny O'Dell on the line with us today. Jenny is an artist and writer. She teaches at Stanford. Her new book is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And Jenny's going to recommend a book for us. Jenny, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Gathering Moths, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Tell us about this book. <laughs> so um, Robin Wall Kimmerer she teaches environmental science. She also has a Native American background and brings uh, both of those perspectives to bear on her writing. I think she's much more well-known for braiding sweetgrass, mm-hmm. which I, I also highly recommend, but I think it's, it's fairly well-known. Gathering Moss is a smaller book that she wrote before that. And it's really, I think, about looking. It's really taught me a different way to look. Um, also, moss is pretty widespread, so I think you know anyone... Re- can read this and and start noticing new things around them. And it's such a beautiful example of a book that is ostensibly about something very small and specific, but it's really about something quite profound. This is maybe a very stupid question. Does she actually gather moss for scientific inquiry? Is that part of the book or is this more of like a humanities (laughs) angle on gathering moss? So it's similar to braiding seagrass in that um, each chapter is kind of a, an almost like self-contained story about her research generally. Some, yeah, sometimes she is gathering moss, but it's it's really kind of like a crash course in moss, <laughs> um, but also like lo- looking at moss and all of the really strange things about moss that you 
might not know, but also that kind of like function really beautifully as, as metaphors for her about ecology and just about kind of like looking and awareness. And, and that's something that's true. I think of all of her writing, you know, because she, I think she has these two sides of her, of her thinking, maybe it makes it easier or maybe that's part of the reason she's so good at using kind of one thing to talk about another thing. This book sounds great. Would you tell us the title again and the author? Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Thank you so much, Jenny. We've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell. She's the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Leslie Jameson, author of Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Would you ever approach a story any other way? I mean, have you ever reported anything where you go in and you're just like, these people are terrible and I I don't believe what they're doing at all. I'm, can you imagine that at all? Or? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting that the, um, I remember when I did an interview for the empathy exams with Merve Emre, who I know has, has done a lot of work for LARB as well. Like, I mean, she once asked me like, do you ever get kind of tired of, being so empathetic, but I feel like part of the subtext of that question was like, um, what are your other tonalities or do other tonalities exist, you know? And um, and the answer is yes. And I think part of what I was interested in doing, yes, of course, because I'm like a human being and, and experience lots of things that are not empathy. But I think part of what I was interested in doing with this collection was like exploring some of those other tonalities and some of those other responses to to people's lives or their stories or their presences and and the essay that you mentioned earlier an essay called layover story which is really kind of um written in a very different way than a lot of the other essays in this collection many of which were like revised over the period of years layover story is about 24 hours in my life and i wrote it kind of like the next day and it just was like it was just an anecdote that happened to me and it was all right there and really strange and really rich and I just wrote it down but it's it's about encountering this stranger when we were both stranded in Houston overnight and she had a sort of mysterious and compelling backstory that kept revealing itself to me in these various layers via Google and via her own recounting to me of her life and part of you know I won't give away all the things that happened in that essay, but part of what I wanted to explore in that essay was like states of being tired of other people and annoyed with other people and frustrated by other people and frustrated by other people's pain and how it can make them irritating or entitled or demanding. And then to think about how the backstories that people bring to their pain can make us sort of want to regard their pain with either irritation or compassion and, and you know, how does that become a, a kind of almost a, an ethical totem pole where we think some pain we don't have the right to get annoyed at if it comes from a particular place, but maybe other pain we do have the right to get annoyed at. But but I think part of what I wanted to let into the frame in that piece was like annoyance, irritation, frustration, like these other modes of encountering people. I also wanted to ask you about um, one of the essays in the book is about you becoming a stepmother, which I think also sort of brings out some of those... Um, feelings in you where you're and you feel guilty about it but you feel frustrated and you feel a little annoyed and there are times when it's difficult can you talk a little bit about what it was like 
stepping into, you were married and um, your husband had a seven-year-old girl? She was five. When she I was five. Married. And so you stepped into this role. What was that like? Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, that, that piece was also one where I wanted not just to let in some of the feelings that I think are hard to talk about when we talk about caregiving of all kinds, whether that's step-parenting or biological parenting or caring for our parents or caring for our friends or, you know, like caregiving is an experience where it can feel uncomfortable to talk about all the layers of resentment and irritation that, that are baked into love and baked into care. And so I think I did want to provide a kind of a corrective to a certain cultural script about mothering that did feel tyrannical to me, which is like you're you're supposed to feel a certain set of ways when you do it. You're supposed to um, feel always kind of compassion and desire and a kind of authentic desire to be present. And, you know, and it's like even if intellectually we can say, oh, of course nobody feels that way all the time. Of course no mother feels that way all the time. The guilt of not feeling that way all the time is still like very real. And one of the, and this maybe gets also to back to an earlier question about kind of inhabiting different modes and writing these pieces because part of that piece is a is a personal narrative about becoming a stepmother. But a large part of that piece is also engaged in literary criticism and cultural criticism and a sort of historical interrogation of the trope of the stepmother, the stepmother, the kind of evil stepmother in fairy tales, but also the evolving American archetype of the stepmother. And one of the things that surprised me when I was doing that research was that I'd sort of gone into that piece thinking that I thought the toxic archetype was like the evil stepmother, like this vision of the stepmother is bad and unloving and uncaring. But when I started to look at these various iterations of American stepmothers, some of whom were kind of evil and uncaring, but at a certain point actually the uh, around the time of the Civil War and its aftermath when American families um, in very brutal, uncompromising ways or being like torn apart, there was a, another vision of the stepmother that emerged as this kind of saintly figure who just wanted to care for these orphan children and for whom almost the orphan children were this kind of gift because they put her in contact with a kind of like essential, immutable nurturer inside of her. And what I ended up feeling was that it was actually the the figure of the saintly stepmother who was far more toxic than the figure of the evil stepmother because she didn't leave any room for all these kinds of feelings that we've been talking about of irritation and frustration and that, and that the evil stepmother had actually been giving us all a kind of gift all along by saying like these things are real. Like sometimes you might want to you know, kill your stepdaughter with a poison comb. And like, and like, you what is, <laughs> we should say that you have not done that. No, no, no poison combs. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that kind of the function of literature is like making room for the dark, petty stuff is, is actually this real gift. What are you working on right now? If you can share any details or some other thing that you yeah. want to work on. Yeah. I'm going to have three brief answers to that question. One, I've been working on a piece very related to what we're just talking about for about a year and a half almost about C-sections and thinking both about my own C-section but the kind of long cultural history of the C-section as like an abomination and an act of God because it has carried both meanings like a, it, as a, it's been seen as a form of miraculous birth and also a, a 
a natural kind of compromised birth. Um, and I'm interested in the ways that like embedded in those narratives of the C-section are all these ideas about what a mother should be that start to get projected onto mothers like from the very moment of birth, actually from before the moment of birth as like all the assaults on reproductive rights can testify to. But um, yeah, so I'm working on the C-section essay. I, I just finished writing an essay about Gary Winogrand's color photography. There's this beautiful exhibit of his color photographs up at the Brooklyn Museum that if any of you find yourselves on the other side of the country, it's like uh, going to church to me. It's totally holy. Um, and I'm working on a piece about Love Island, the British reality television show. So, yeah. What brought you to Love Island? Oh, my God. <laughs> Loneliness and desperation. Um, but, what, <laughs> but what I found there was like what I did not know I totally needed. Yeah. Let's open up to questions. Thank you so much, Leslie. Oh, my God. Thank you, guys. I could talk to you all night oh, so by fun. this magical pool. Okay, I think we should have a microphone out for the audience. Will you raise your hand if you have a question for Leslie? I, I wanted you to just talk for a second about the flip side of this last conversation you were having about um, not being empathetic. Because there seemed to me that one of the things that I noticed in this collection more than I did in earlier ones was that you were... You talk about it ex explicitly a couple of times. You were in, you were interested in just allowing yourself to say that you loved X or you loved somebody or you loved right. To, 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 beyond this is beyond empathy. Empathy is still a relationship which allows a little bit of distance, a little bit of self and other, and you're allowing yourself to indulge in th in thinking love more straightforwardly. Is that fair? Yeah, I love. <laughs> I love that question. One of the essays in the collection is about a photographer named Annie Appel, who, among other projects, has been, without really any institutional support or funding, has been photographing the same family in Mexico for almost 30 years now. The family lives on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, and so she's photographing them on both sides. But one of the things I was really drawn to in her project beyond the kind of obsessive stamina of it and the fact that she literally kept going back to take more and more photographs and that seemed both like a source of power and also like a real argument with the necessary incompleteness of documentary art. Like she, It's almost like if she never finishes, she'll never have to accept that that her portrait of this family is incomplete as like all portraits are incomplete. But one of the things I'm really drawn to in Annie, which is what gets to your question, is that she unabashedly talks about her artistic work using a language of love, that she loves her subjects um, and that she wants her photographs to manifest that love. And I was really drawn to that language because I feel that so much literary culture is allergic to that that sort of um, way of describing what it is that we do as if love is unrigorous or love necessarily connotes a kind of blunted focus or vague attention that when you, like the idea that when you love something, you're blind to it in some way or your vision goes blind. And I'm really interested in the ways that in Amy's work, and I think aspire to this in my own, that love can actually sharpen your attention in certain ways that can make you see things 
with a kind of hyper focus because you're so attuned. It can make you see with a kind of appreciation that love engenders, but it can also make you see with a sort of ego um, extension hypercriticality that love can also engender. So I think I'm I'm interested what, by the ways that deep affective connection to what you're writing about doesn't have to be seen as this sort of polluting force that needs to be washed away from the work, but that you can kind of ride the engine of that affective investment or attachment towards a sort of attention that that is whose nerve endings are sort of uh, hyper focused by it. Um, so I think in that way, the ways in which I'm interested in like letting love into the frame rather than denying its presence are also attached to that hope that it can come with a sort of sharpened attention. A relationship with a romantic partner would be similar because, right, you presumably love them um, and are dedicated to them and yet who knows their flaws and their mm-hmm. horrible little annoyances and little things better than you do, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why I was using that phrase ego extension at a certain point because that's one of the ways that I think about how hypercriticality shows up in romantic relationships, right? That you start, the, the more you love somebody, the more you can also forget that they are not you and start to subject them to the same hypercriticality that you might subject yourself to. And so, yes, that kind of super attunement to their, um, you know, uh, annoying habits, the things that they eat for breakfast that you wish they didn't, like all of that stuff. The parts of them that are not you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's so annoying. Um, Okay, another question? Will you just shout shout your question and we'll repeat it? Yeah. Um, Okay, should I summarize that? Um, That question was about um, your stepmother essay and the toxic stepmother and the Madonna stepmother, but what about the stepmother of today who kind of can't do anything right? She's stuck between um, uh, different options that all seem to doom her to failure. Yeah, I was was very interested in that predicament and... um, and I think that that predicament feels entirely connected to those two archetypes of the stepmother, the evil stepmother with the poisoned apple and the Madonna stepmother, because I think that the stepmother of today who can't do anything right, part of why she can't do anything right and part of why, and maybe in some broader way, it's hard for mothers to completely do things right is because they're constantly living in relation to these deep, archetypal figures that we all have sort of encoded into our DNA through all these stories we've absorbed, right? So that the mother, the stepmother who can't do anything right is sort of constantly falling short of the maternal ideal represented by the saintly stepmother and is constantly sort of living in the shadow of the evil stepmother with the poisoned apple. And and then I, another thing I really tried to and so, and so in that sense, the stepmother of today is like totally continuous. Her predicament is totally continuous with those archetypes rather than something separate from them, I think. But I also, I was really interested in the work of this psychologist, Elizabeth Church, who writes quite a bit about stepmothers and is herself a stepmother. And part of what she describes, which felt to me like a very important phenomenon to identify and articulate was the ways in which like guilt itself or a feeling of internalized guilt became its own sort of driving force where the stepmother's internalized feeling, not just this narrative she was getting from other people in her life maybe, but this internalized feeling of not being enough 
was this kind of like constant voice inside of her that meant she couldn't even relate to her own role in some way that didn't feel like defensive or responsive. And there was this really moving like methodological footnote in one of Elizabeth Church's like psychological studies where she said, and it really wasn't part of the body of the text, but in like a, almost like a uh, kind of like quasi David Foster Wallison way, like it felt like it held the this really important kernel of truth just like tucked into the margins. She said that um, she, after she did these interviews with stepmothers, like at the end of the interview, she would reveal to them that she herself was a stepmother and that often the things that they would say after that revelation markedly changed from what they had said before, like when they felt like they were in this space where they could admit more of the kind of dark stuff that they were feeling. And that to me was meaningful in its own right, that there was all this baggage attached to the role that um, that made it feel impossible to confess the darker feelings until you felt like you were in the company of somebody or had learned you were in the company of somebody that you thought might be able to hold them. Um, so I was really struck by the um, breadth and variation of topic that you covered. And I know that you probably wrote these essays all separately and maybe with no intention of them ever living together in one book. You mentioned that in the essay about um, pregnancy and how it related to um, your eating disorder that you didn't really think of that as one essay until you saw them side by side. And I'm wondering if there were any other revelations that came out about from seeing your work that spread all over these years that written in kind of separate disparate moments and seeing it all together if you kind of came to any revelations of how they connected or yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm One of the great pleasures of creating a collection out of a series of essays is the belief that they can do something together that they couldn't do on their own or the hope that they could do something together that's kind of a gestalt more than just the sum of the parts. And with this book, and this was also true with the empathy exams, it was sort of partway through the process of writing the pieces that I started to imagine them as part of a collection. So many of the pieces really were written with an awareness of other essays and a sense of how they would speak together. So it wasn't just a process of like writing 14 separate pieces and then putting them together. Um, it was a process of writing pieces over a course of several years, starting to notice, as, as we were talking about right in the beginning of, of our conversation, starting to notice these themes that were that seemed to be preoccupations for me around longing and haunting and the epigraph actually of the collection, which is a, a quote from Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping, came to me pretty early on in the process as this kind of connective thread. And that quote is, um, when do our senses know anything so utterly as when we lack it? And that idea of like a state of lack or longing as a state of sharpened attention, maybe not related to love as a state of sharpened attention, um, felt to me like this connective thread. So then when I started to write, like for example, the piece about Second Life was very much written with a sense of knowing that it was going to be in this collection alongside the piece about people who are obsessed with a whale and alongside the piece about people who had past life memories and their families um, as this sort of third part of that triptych that was looking at um, kind of like waves of imagining a life 
that is not your daily proximate life, but could somehow shed some kind of meaning on your daily proximate life. I sort of thought of the whale piece and the past lives piece and the digital lives piece as like three parts of one project. So there was a, a, a way in which some of these pieces were written very explicitly with an eye to how they might work in this whole. But totally, I would notice things like um, there's a Sontag quote about people want the weight of witnessing without the taint of artistry. Um, this idea, which again connects to what we were talking about, about the sort of fantasy of like getting rid of certain kinds of pollutants, like the pollutant of subjectivity or the pollutant of presence or the pollutant of too much I or even like the pollutant of love that I was really interested in interrogating like why is it that we think an act of representation might be more meaningful if it doesn't have that if it's not like contaminated by that subjectivity that quote kept showing up in different pieces it showed up in the piece about civil war photography that was published in LARB showed up in my essay about AG it showed up in my essay about the photographer Annie Appel who I was mentioning earlier and so in that sense I was I could see the ways that certain conceptual wrestlings were very much like kinds of threads that ran through various pieces. And and even, you know, Tom's question about love is another instance where I sort of started to see connections emerging that I hadn't necessarily known were there. When I was thinking about Annie's project, I was thinking about how when she committed to photographing this family 30 years ago, part of what she was committing to was the state of unknowing, that she didn't know how it was going to unfold, that she didn't know where her relationships with the members of this family were going to go, but she, but that that was something that, that she was illuminating about actually what love is, which is like committing to something you, who's unfolding you can't really see. But that idea of like love as a commitment to what you can't foresee um, became this kind of connection between my piece about Annie and her photography and then some of the pieces about domesticity and family making, the more personal pieces that followed. Yeah, let's just do maybe one more. Yeah. The, the question was, how do you choose what to write about? What are you feeling when you choose what you're writing about? Yeah, and, and, I, and the question also of, of sort of the process of a piece and how it might look different for different pieces and the sort of emotional relationship to a subject um, or to the process of writing about a subject. So in terms of where ideas come from or how I choose what to write about, all different ways. So sometimes, I mean, so the whale piece was actually, uh, came to me from an editor. An editor came to me and said, you know, this whale <laughs> and his and the people who have become obsessed with him um, seems like something you would love. And I said, yes, you are correct. I, I do want to write about this whale. I felt that pretty immediately. But, and in a way that's related to the last question, like that part of love is sort of signing up for something you can't see the edges of. I could feel a gut hunch that I was drawn to something about that whale story, but I had no idea what it was going to feel like to write about that whale for, in the case of that piece, it was really like an 18-month process um, that involved a lot of reporting, a lot of like tracking down people who were, not just tracking down the people who had originally tracked this whale, the like naval audio engineers, but also tracking down tons of people, you know, the Polish tabloid photographer, the Irish union organizer, the Muslim American woman in Ann Arbor, the post 
comatose woman in Harlem um, who had become obsessed with this whale and getting their stories to see what exactly they had projected onto this whale and how the story of this whale had become a tool of survival. That process and then figuring out how to write the story and how to arrange all of its various moving pieces was like an 18-month process that was both, um, you know, it was work, but it also did feel pretty emotional. There was a um, a musician who composed an entire album of songs dedicated to the whale that I was listening to quite a bit during the 18 months that I was writing about the whale. If you talk to anybody who knew me in late 2013 or the first half of 2014, I can almost guarantee that I subjected them to this one particular like 10 minute song that was dedicated to the whale. And so in that way, it like really became certain pieces really kind of like seeped into the fabric of my daily life. And I like that. I like the ways that you start to like live a piece and you start to sort of think about your own life in relation to that piece. And you start to sort of, um, you know, almost in like a beautiful mind kind of way, like everything starts to seem connected and like the, you know, everything you, every, everything I was hearing or seeing on the street seemed like it was related to the whale in some way. And I wanted to tell everybody about the whale and tell them how their lives were kind of connected to the story of this whale. And so um, with, with those like long, longer term pieces, I kind of like the way that it starts to become um, like a, you know, I was living with one of my best friends at the time and, and I, you know, she would refer to the whale as our third roommate. And I think um, a, a piece when you're really giving yourself to it can start to feel like a third member of your marriage or a third roommate or like another, another, another presence in your life who's sort of there with you at all times. That seems like a good place to end. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Tom and Lori, our beautiful hosts, for having us in your beautiful house. A quick round of applause for everybody, huh? Um, okay, I'm just going to quickly do an outro. We have been speaking with Leslie Jamison. Her most recent book is a collection of essays. It is called Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Thank you again, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.